And I ask you, the rest of you, to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew, the 24th chapter. And this morning we get back to our study here in Matthew. We had a little interruption last week, but it really wasn't an interruption that we minded. It's always good to have uh, one of our missionaries back uh, to report to us. And we had Ray and Marlene Virtue here, and that was a blessing to hear the work that uh, they're doing, uh, even at... uh, uh, their young age uh, out there uh, in Germany, been there for many, many years, and we're trusting the Lord to continue to give them the strength uh, to do His work there. This morning we want to continue in chapter 24 and uh, look at beginning in verses 29 through 35. As we get back to our study here uh, this morning, we want to, uh, I want to apologize first of all uh, for some who may be listening on the uh, audio uh, of our website, uh, we've been experiencing some technical difficulties uh, the last several weeks, and hopefully we got that worked out now until uh, the time something else causes a problem, of course. And uh, that's always a possibility when it comes to technology, right? Uh, you all drive cars, so you know what I mean. Um, We want to remember, first of all, Christ is answering some questions set forth by the disciples. When shall these things be? Uh, They asked this concerning Christ's prediction of destruction of Jerusalem. And what shall be the sign of your coming, that is, into his kingdom reign and unto the end of the world? And in answering the first question, he spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., by which, by the way, was prefigured, uh, uh, prefigured the great tribulation that's yet to come. And after our last study, someone asked about that, and I want to hopefully give you some help along that line as well this morning. But the most significant event in Bible prophecy is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's an event so important that there are over 300 separate prophecies relating to it in the Word of God. Uh, That makes it the most important doctrine in the Bible, if we go by number. But it's the key that unlocks the door uh, that leads to the future. I don't, I don't believe any Christian can uh, be said to have a well-rounded faith who does not understand the basic truth about the second coming of Christ. Uh, there, this thing has been debated over the years, and, and some people have denied that, just like they've denied the uh, deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've denied the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've denied many of these very... Uh, Uh, important doctrines of the Bible, but all roads of history and prophecy converge at this point of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has said this, for every biblical prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight concerning his second coming. Now this ought to alert us to the importance of our topic this morning here in Matthew 24. Christians have always believed that one day Christ will return to the earth. It's the climax of of our statements of faith, and it's the final proof of the sovereignty of God over human history. Uh, His coming will bring an end uh, to this age. It will usher in the coming kingdom of Christ, and His return will bring us to the final stage of our redemption, the culmination of all that God has promised to those who love His Son. I should also note, uh, while Christians have always believed in the return of Christ, They have often disagreed about the details. 
Uh, in our day, there's a lively debate over how, uh, how the rapture uh, that we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 relates to the second coming as we read here in Matthew 24. But some say, well, it's the same event. Others say, well, it's separated by three and a half years or by seven years. Uh, it's a the old pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib debate. And many Christians are like the man who said he's pan-trib. Pan-trib means he believes it's all going to pan out. Okay? <laughs> well, he's certainly right that God's plan will ultimately come to pass. Now, before we get into the message this morning, I want you to notice three things. Number one is the rapture question. Uh, to be sure, there are various views on how the rapture relates to the tribulation. And without going into a great detail, I should say up front that I think this is an area where Christians uh, maybe uh, see things differently. Essentially, the issue comes down to the fact that the New Testament presents the truth of the second coming in various passages, and they kind of offer different pictures of the return of Christ. And those pictures, or images, if you will, are not always the same, but no one no one passage tells us everything. And that's why it's important to study the Bible uh, as a whole. Study the context of the Bible. Study the context of a verse in the context of a chapter, in the context of a book, in the context of the Bible. And that's why it's important for me as your pastor to preach the whole counsel of God's truth, not just to pick and choose here and there uh, little favorite uh, passages of Scripture or things that uh, uh, make us uh, may, maybe make us feel good. Uh, but uh, uh, no matter which view uh, is held, you have to think about how Matthew 24 relates to First and Second Thessalonians and how these passages relate to the book of Revelation. Uh, many Bible students, including myself, believe that Christ's return will occur in two stages. Uh, this is usually called the pre-tribulation rapture view. That is, we believe Christ will come before the tribulation to resurrect dead Christians and to rapture or to catch away living believers. These Christians are raised or raptured and they'll be taken to heaven. Uh, to the Father's house that uh, uh, we read about in John 14, 1 to 3, uh, where their works will be judged, which we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, and the judgment seat followed by the marriage supper of the Lamb, we read about in Revelation chapter 19. And so while all this is going on in heaven, the horrors of the seven-year tribulation or the 70th week of Daniel chapter 9 will begin to unfold on the earth. <coughs> the Antichrist will be revealed and he will commit the abomination that causes desolation at the midpoint of the tribulation. And the last three and a half years will be marked by a succession of judgments that will result in a near total destruction of the human society. And when humanity, having chosen to follow the Antichrist, has become a rotting corpse, Ready for the final judgment, Jesus is going to return from heaven with the saints and the angels at his side, and he will defeat the Antichrist and establish his kingdom here on this earth, according to Revelation chapter 19 and 20. And he's coming at the end of the tribulation, so it's called the glorious appearing. We read about that in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Now the second thing I want to note here is there's a coming for and a coming with his saints. The difference between the rapture and the glorious appearing of Christ can be put this way. 
In the rapture, Christ comes for his saints, and at the glorious appearing, he comes with his saints. The rapture takes place in the air, the glorious appearing uh, uh, takes place on the earth. In the rapture, believers go from earth to heaven. At the glorious appearing, they go from heaven to earth. And at the rapture, Jesus comes to reward his people. At the glorious appearing, he comes to judge the earth. At the rapture, he claims his bride, while at the glorious appearing, he comes with his bride. The rapture takes place before the tribulation, and the glorious appearing takes place after the tribulation. The one marks the beginning of the tribulation, the other marks the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And at the rapture, believers are saved from the wrath of the Lamb, and at the glorious appearing, Christ appears to bring an end to the wrath of the Lamb. Now, there are no signs of the rapture, while there are still many signs for the glorious appearing of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Now, someone might say, well, there's no verse in the Bible that says Christ will come before the uh, tribulation. And yet the careful Bible student examining all that the Bible says will find that that is certainly the case. And in this sermon, in this series of messages I'm preaching, what I I believe uh, what the Bible teaches However, I encourage you all to hear, uh, hear my words, to search the prophetic scriptures for themselves. I encourage you to be a student of the word. Read and study and compare and analyze. And I commend the whole topic of Bible prophecy to you as one who is both fascinated and personally edifying. Now that brings me back to the main point here, which is that Christians have always believed in the second coming of Christ. Jesus himself declared, I will come again. John 14, 3. When Christ ascended into heaven, the angels promised the disciples that this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. It says that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. And belief in the second coming has always been considered one of the fundamental truths of our faith. Even though we have often argued about the details surrounding the return, Christians have agreed on this fact. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. I find it highly significant that three times in the, uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, Christ specifically declares, I come quickly. In chapter 22, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. And the last prayer of the Bible is a prayer for the second coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now that brings us to a mind-blowing truth. That's what you were waiting for, wasn't it? A mind-blowing truth. Now, we don't want to make a mess here, uh, blowing minds, but uh, uh, a mind-blowing truth. And it's amazing what you can find in the Bible sometimes. Uh, Acts chapter 1, I already quoted that for you, in verse 11, makes it clear that that Jesus himself will one day return to the earth. It will be this same Jesus who's coming again, as it says there, in like manner or in the same way as he left. Now, twice in one verse, Luke gives to us a sense of same to tell us something crucial about the second coming. The same Jesus who left will one day return. And he will return the same way that he left. 
Now, if plain English can have any meaning at all, those words teach us that Jesus is coming back personally, literally, visibly, and bodily. We might also add that His coming will be sudden and unexpected. In Luke chapter 24, it informs us that Jesus reached out His hands to bless His disciples, and He began to... uh, uh, rise from the face of the earth, eventually without any warning whatsoever. And we can assume that his return is going to be no less astonishing and no less surprising. And this is truly a mind-blowing or astounding thought. This same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem is coming again. This same Jesus who grew up in Nazareth is coming again. This same Jesus who turned the water into wine is coming again. This same Jesus who walked on water is coming again. This same Jesus who healed the nobleman's son is coming again. And the same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead is coming again. The same Jesus who entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is coming again. The same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem is coming again. And the same Jesus who betrayed was betrayed by Judas is coming again. The same Jesus who was whipped and beaten and scourged and mocked and condemned to death is coming again. And the same Jesus who died on Mount Calvary is coming again. Again, the same Jesus who rose from the dead on Resurrection Sunday morning is coming again. The same Jesus who ascended into heaven is coming again. Now that's what we mean when we say Jesus is coming again. The actual historical figure who lived on this earth some 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world is returning to this earth one more time. Kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? You stop and think about that. The the same Jesus we sing about at Christmas time, who was born as a baby, is coming again. The same Jesus that we celebrate His resurrection and His ascension into heaven, He's coming to this earth again. And so there awaits in the future... An event more marvelous, more startling, more amazing, more blessed than anything that has happened for the last 2,000 years. I'm talking about the literal, visible, bodily return of Christ to this earth. No event may seem less likely to modern man. You go around down the streets and you say, yes, people, you know, do you know that Jesus is coming again? You say, who, what, why? People don't care about that today. If they know about it, they don't care about it. No event is more certain in the light of inspired Scripture. And so as we get into our passage this morning, notice we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ. Notice verse 29 through 31. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall be not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the man of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Now these three verses describe the coming 
of Christ at the end of the tribulation. I know that sometimes we look at that and we read that and we say, that sounds like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But they deserve, these verses deserve our attention because in them we discover the precise circumstances surrounding this great event. Notice the time of his coming. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now in this context, the reference can only be to the coming seven year tribulation that immediately precedes the coming of Christ to the earth. Jesus has just finished warning his disciples about the Antichrist who will commit the abomination that causes desolation, leading to a time of trouble never before seen on this earth, never to be seen again. And that prediction, it, even though it was prefigured by the Roman conquest of Jerusalem in AD 70, which they would have probably more uh, been apt to uh, be thinking uh, concerning, but in those days to come to the whole world, and that the whole world will be plunged into chaos as the Antichrist rises to power and the various judgments of the Revelation are poured out on the earth. When those days have come to the appointed fearful climax, then Jesus will return to the earth. That's the time. Secondly, the heavenly signs of His coming. It says here in verse 29 that the sun will be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Now he mentions three specific cosmic signs of the return of Christ, and then a a general cosmic sign. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and then the general one is the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now the, the most important point about this is to be made that these are literal events that will happen in the future. There's no reason to just to say, well, they're symbolic. Uh, you know, they're just nothing more than a figurative window dressing, a, you know, um, something to kind of impress us with the seriousness of the second coming. No, the sun will somehow, and I don't know how, But it will be darkened, and the moon will disappear. The stars will fall from the sky, and every star, planet, comet, meteor, asteroid, every other heavenly body will be shaken out of its God-appointed place. And there's no reason to doubt that this will happen. After all, Colossians 1 tells us that Christ holds all things together. He's the glue of the universe. And if Christ were to say that word today, right now, The sun should be dark and the moon will go black and the stars will fall from the sky. And for that matter, if Christ said the word that gravity would cease and the universe would explode into a trillion pieces, God could do it. He holds it together. And if he's not holding it together, where are we? We're in trouble. The only reason things hold together right now is that the sovereign word of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christ returns, the gravitational field will somehow be altered, causing the stars to veer from their courses, the planets to careen off into space. And it will be the most amazing event in world history. There are three words to describe that moment. I think three words would describe it terrifying, worldwide, and unmistakable. No one will miss what is happening. No one on this earth will miss it 
or what is about to happen. All these things are signs of divine judgment. They are God's way of waking up a rebellious world and saying, you wanted to do nothing, uh, wanted nothing to do with me, so I'm going to let you have your way. You followed the Antichrist and you gave him your allegiance and look where it's gotten you. Your ancestors rejected my son and you have followed his satanic replacement. Oh world, there's bad news ahead for you. You made the wrong choice. You forgot about me. The day of judgment has finally come. And that day, day, the world will be shaken. Get the shaking it deserves. So we have the time of his coming, the heavenly signs of his coming. And thirdly, in verse 30, the reality of his coming. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This verse describes the literal return of Christ to the earth. Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that when Christ comes, His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. One Bible teacher points out that the second coming will be like a stately procession that everyone is going to be able to see in the sky. You see, it's not going to be like the rapture. That's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye. But the warring combatants led by the Antichrist will who gather first to attack each other, then to join the forces to attack the Son of God as he journeys from heaven to earth, will actually see Christ in the skies as he makes his way from heaven to earth, surrounded by the saints and the angels and the billowing clouds of God's glory. Now there's a phrase in here that says all the tribes of the earth. First and foremost, a reference to the tribes of Israel. It extends to the nations that it Its primary meaning is Israel. The people of the earth will mourn when they see Christ returning because, number one, they know He's coming in judgment. Number two, they will realize that they weren't ready for His coming. And this will be a sign visible to the entire earth. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, amen. Now the second coming of Christ will be of power and great glory. Perhaps the best way to understand that statement is to compare the circumstances surrounding the first and the second comings. The first time Jesus came, he came unnoticed by the world. Now the second time he comes, every eye is going to see him. It says, they shall see the Son of Man coming. In his first coming, Jesus humbled himself, being born in a stable in Bethlehem. When he returns, he's going to come back as a King of kings and the Lord of lords. In his first coming, he endured the mockery of men who despised him for his goodness. And although he was the Son of God, he allowed them to put him to death that he might thereby provide salvation for the world. And when he comes again, all mockery will cease. For he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He came the first time as the Lamb of God. He comes again as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Two thousand years ago, the religious leaders shouted in scorn, He saved others, himself he cannot save. 
The day is coming when the whole world will see Jesus as it really is. And when that happens, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now around the first coming, you could put the words humility. You could put it in letters large and bold, humility. Around his second coming, you could have the word glory. So that all the world could see, nothing could be more natural than a triumphant return of our victorious Lord. And though he was once despised and rejected of men, he will one day return in power and great glory, heralded by the angels, accompanied by his saints. That's the reality of his coming. Now notice, fourthly, the result of his coming. Verse 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Once Christ returns to the earth, he's going to send the angels to gather the elect from the four world corners of the earth. By the way, again, this is not describing the rapture, because angels are not connected with the rapture. The Lord will come in a person, uh, in person to receive his saints with the sound of a trumpet, and his voice will be like that of an archangel. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it doesn't say the angels are coming. People say, well, well we, we say and we sing about, listen for the trumpet. Now, I don't know if there will be a trumpet or not, but it's going to sound like a trumpet, Okay. We do know that. It's going to sound like a trumpet, and the Lord won't need any help by angels to gather his saints together. He died for believers, and he's going to bring us together. And so we're going to meet him in the air. But when he says here that the angels shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, we can be sure he's talking about the nation of Israel. Now, if you make notes in your Bible, perhaps it would be good to write beside this verse right here, Romans 11, 26. Because in that verse, the Apostle Paul declares that when Christ comes, when he returns, all Israel shall be saved. That's what he says in Romans 11, 26. And at this point, the prophecies of Zechariah come to pass. In Zechariah 12, verse 7, it says, The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. And then he goes on to say, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And then in Zechariah 13, 1, it says, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. You see, the day is coming. Days are coming when Jews in vast numbers will willingly, freely, gladly, openly trust Christ as their Savior. And they're going to look upon Him whom they pierced, and they're going to realize their mistake, and the fountain of forgiveness will be open to them. The partial blindness, as we see in Romans chapter 11, that has come upon the Jewish people will be removed. 
And the nation as a nation will uh, reverse its judgment made 2,000 years ago. The official rejection of Jesus Christ will be thrown out of court, so to speak. And he'll be enthroned in his proper place as the true son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. And at the present time, only a tiny remnant of Jews have even embraced Christ as Lord. You don't don't find vast numbers of Jews trusting Christ today. But that's going to change. When Jesus returns to this earth, the sons of Abraham will come home to the son of David and worship him as Lord and Savior. And so then we move on to the next part of this passage. In verses 32 and 33, we have a lesson of the fig tree. Our passage closes with an explanation about the timing of the second coming and an encouragement about the enduring nature of the words of Jesus. Notice an illustration from nature. In verse 32, it says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and putting forth leaves you know that summer is nigh. So likewise, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Now the disciples have easily, could have easily, and would have easily understood this illustration. You see, they knew that every spring the leaves began to grow on the twigs and the buds began to develop, and that was a sure sign that summer was not far away. Now I know we're getting on the tail end of summer here. And we've got some signs that winter is on the way. I shouldn't say that, should I? Especially here. But you know, in springtime, we look for those signs that summer's on the way, don't we? It might be a few weeks or it might be several months, but the leaves and the buds meant that summer was coming. And so in the same way, the coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation will be preceded by a whole series of events, some of them mentioned by Christ here in chapter 24, others found in the Old Testament, and still others are set forth in the book of Revelation. And so these events will be so strikingly obvious that they cannot be missed. They're the key pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that finally fall into place. And when we see the pieces of the prophetic puzzle, you know the end is near. Now, as I pointed out earlier in this series, as we've been studying this chapter, there are many signs that can be seen in a greater or lesser way in every generation. We say, well, we can see the signs of his coming. Yeah, we can see some of those things. It's a combination of signs plus the increasing tempo of these events that will mark the last days. Plus, there are some absolutely unique things such as the abomination that causes desolation by the Antichrist on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the tribulation that's going to tip off any thoughtful observers that the coming of Christ is near or right at the doors, it says here. You see, when you see uh, any fruit tree putting forth leaves and buds in the spring, you know that summer's not far off. And so here's an illustration that Jesus uses. Then in verse 34, a promise to this generation. Notice verse 34. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now the question of verse 34 is, what generation was Jesus talking about when he used the phrase this generation? 
Well, it cannot refer to the first century generation that heard these words because the events he spoke about did not happen in their generation. Even if you say that the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 prefigures the events of the last day, there is no sense in which the events of verse 30, uh, 29 through 31 happened in the first century or any time since. So this generation can mean and refer only to the nation of Israel. Or maybe it could refer to the generation that will be living at the time that these predictions come to pass. But a generation is reckoned to be about 20 years, and certainly the predicted events of this passage will take place in a much briefer time than 20 years. I believe that it refers to the preservation of the Jewish race. You know, Haman could not destroy the the Jews, could he? Remember Haman in the book of Esther? He couldn't destroy the Jews. Neither could Pharaoh. Pharaoh couldn't get rid of them. And Hitler, he couldn't exterminate them. You know what? Hamas cannot exterminate them either today. They can't do it. God will see to it that they're not destroyed. So there's a promise here to this generation. The nation of Israel you'll not be completely wiped out as some people would like them to be. Like Hamas and others in the Middle East. And then we have a guarantee to every generation. Verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Oh, I'm thankful for that verse. Here's a wonderful promise and a guarantee to every generation And we learn two particular important truths from this verse. Number one, this universe is not eternal. Contrary to the speculations of certain scientists and philosophers, the universe had a definite beginning and will have a definite end. It exists because God called it into being. And it will pass away whenever God says the word. Secondly, the words of Christ will stand forever. I know that many will scoff and some will laugh at the things I have said in this sermon, perhaps. But to the man of the world, (coughs) excuse me, to the man of the world, the notion that Jesus will one day return seems a fantastic notion. It seems to be even a fairy tale. It sounds absurd to the man who does not know God. How could someone who lived 2,000 years ago return to this earth in the 21st century? That's impossible. It'll be mocked. It'll be ridiculed. And they'll say, what makes you think Jesus will come back? 2 Peter 3 and verse 4 says, And saying, "Where, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep and all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation, even Jesus himself, see, pointed out the problem. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And I I would admit, you know, it seems very difficult to think, you know, would Jesus really come back? Jesus has been gone a long time. Will we still believe in his word? 
Do we look for his coming or have we relegated the second coming to a category of nice things that probably won't happen in my lifetime? Folks, listen, his word will stand. We have his promise. Every jot and every tittle will be fulfilled. His, he will return just as he promised and better to doubt the laws of nature than the word of, of risen Christ. Better to believe the sun and the moon have fallen from the sky than to doubt his word. Few believed in the promise of his first coming. Few believed that he is coming again. But whether many believe or few believe, or if no one believes, Jesus is coming. He's coming again. The story is told of a businessman who, having an errand to run at his office, took his young son along with him. He asked the boy to wait on the steps while he went inside to do his work, and soon he became engrossed with his business that he forgot about his son waiting outside. Leaving the building by a different door, he went home alone. Several hours later, the family sat down to dinner, but the son was not present. His mother became worried and wondered where he might be, and then the father remembered where he left his son. Hurrying back to his place of work, he found his son tired and hungry, but still waiting as he had been instructed to do. And the little boy said this, I knew you would come, Father. You said you would. Two thousand years have passed since Jesus went to heaven, and some of God's children are tired and hungry. And we wonder, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Perhaps he has forgotten us. Maybe he got distracted with another universe or something. (laughs) Perhaps he made other plans. Well, if you feel like that little boy, take heart. Yes, it's been a long time from our point of view, but he's only been gone for two days from heaven's perspective. Remember, a day is, is as a thousand years. It's been a couple of thousand years. He's only been gone two days. He said he would come back, and he will. Fear not, child of God. Keep believing. He hasn't forgotten you. Soon Christ will return for his own. And with this hope, we lay our loved ones to rest in the sacred soil of death. And with this hope, we rise every morning to look to the eastern sky and say, maybe today. My Lord will come. And all Christians believe that Jesus will come back someday. He said he would. And he never forgets his promises. Now you may say this morning, but if this passage is talking about after his coming, after the tribulation, will any of us be here? Does it really matter? Well, here's the application of this great truth. Jesus is coming That is certain, and the precise time is hidden in the heart of God, and it may be soon. It may not be for a hundred years, but as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord." And so living believers will be caught up and all of God's children will rise to meet the Lord in the air. 
And that is what starts the chain of events that will eventually lead to his return to this earth. So you cannot, you and I can say, even though we won't be here after the tribulation, we can say, hey, the Lord is coming. And he first comes for us. And we go to be with him in the Father's house. And then we're going to come back with him. And since no one knows when the rapture will occur, anybody know that here? You know, people have tried to figure that out. But we don't know. Our job as believers is very clear. Believe in His coming. Pray for His coming. Love His coming. Preach His coming. Watch for His coming. Wait for His coming. Expect His coming. And look for His coming. He said He would be back. And He is coming. Live as it might be today. And one day, you won't be disappointed. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, don't wait another day. Don't wait another hour or another second. Run to the cross. Lay your sins on Jesus. Trust Him as your great Savior. This is a very important decision, the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Don't be caught unprepared when the Son of God returns to this earth. Let's pray.